Good morning, afternoon, or night, whenever or wherever you happen to be. You're listening to Music in Theory, where we take deep dives into musical topics for listeners both nerdy and normal. I'm Brent Lawrence, and today we're talking about the art of notation. Today on the show, I'm having a conversation with my good friend Joseph Vratis about musical notation. You know, the dots and lines and flags and stuff. Joey and I are both classically trained composers, so that means we spend a lot of time putting our musical thoughts onto paper and making sure that those thoughts are communicated clearly. Joey happens to be really, really, really good at this particularly engraving, which is more or less hyper-detailed formatting done to sheet music. So we'll talk about that, what is fun about the process of notating, and what's frustrating. We'll also talk about non-standard notation, too, and how music was notated hundreds of years ago. It's going to be fascinating, and also, don't worry, if we get off in the weeds, narrator Brent will jump back in to make sure you know what's going on. Just wanted to make a few mentions before we get started, though. This is a brand new podcast, so getting the word out about it would help me out a lot. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, or whatever else. Our Facebook handle is at Music in Theory Pod, and Twitter is just at Music in Theory. Also, check out the Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Music in Theory. I'll put all of this in the show notes, too. But the biggest thing that you can do to help is just spread the word. And if you feel like it, leave a five-star rating review on iTunes so that the powers that be know this podcast is cool. Okay, without further ado, here's Joseph Vranis. Notation. 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 Uh, All right, we'll pull from our questions here. What is our relationship to notation? Do you want to start there? Sure. What do you mean by notation? Right? Like yeah. sheet music, I guess. Well, it's music notated. <laughs> it's music notated. <laughs> it's music notated. On the staff. On a staff. And since we're composers, mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time... Notating. Notating. Yes. It yeah. In various lackluster programs. Well, some are more lackluster than others, but we that's a different that's a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, not trying to end friendships. Oh yeah, not yet anyway. <laughs> Just kidding. So but uh, in our little community here, your notation skills are revered. So your engraving skills are revered. Thank you. So that's why I figured you'd be a good person to talk to about. Sure. Well, I I love notation in the sense that you can make what even sounds like a mess of sound look really organized. Mm-hmm. And I think as a young person, looking at scores is what got me to want to be a composer. Mm-hmm. 
because seeing that organization and hearing it at the same time is something really special. So I'm drawn more to conducting and composing because those are the two sides of notation. Mm-hmm. It, ultimate, like, ultimate notation. There's part stuff, which we can talk about later. Yeah. But in regards to a score and making a score look visually appealing for a performer and a, other composers or yourself to look at is, I think, really one of the my favorite parts of composition. Well, like, on your point of unorganized sounds mm-hmm. um just because something sounds unorganized doesn't mean that it is yeah exactly or that it wasn't premeditated exactly and so looking at a score that where you hear that kind of mess and i think that's more now a, a 21st century phenomenon of this like organized chaos mm-hmm. and what's organized about it is the score and that's not what people are hearing they're hearing the chaos right but if it i think notation is important in order to actually achieve the sound that you are creating as a composer, if it is supposed to be unorganized, it still needs to be organized in some kind of way so that all the players know what they need to do to make and add to that unorganization. Yeah, because typically, if you're a composer, you have a specific goal in mind yeah. for a sound, even if it's even if that goal is to have just a mm-hmm. like a thump at a particular time. Yeah. It's not like necessarily an organized mm-hmm. sound, but it happens at an organized time. Exactly. And there, there is a phenomenon going around where it's like composers think, I don't want any organization. Mm-hmm. And they want their sounds to be almost completely random and, you know, chance music and all this, everything is different every time mm-hmm. kind of thing. But I still think that there needs to be some kind of organization to it. Right. You think of composers who started that chance music phenomenon and you look at their scores, which are mostly words, mm-hmm. describing to you in great detail yes. what needs to be done. That's organization. Yeah. And we can you can flout on all these composers that have the handwritten scores that are that is used as the regular score now and it's kind of disorganized and looks like it was written in a coffee shop and people bow down and say oh look at this this is like the start of this new phenomenon yes you can have that but it it kind of depends on yourself as a composer and your goals if you want your music to be performed you have to make it organized and make it look nice so that people will want to do it right um and i think that's where no offense to a lot of composers but that's where there's something that falls short Right. You know, there's something special about a really clean looking score that you're going to you're going to infuse a passion immediately in your performers to want to perform something that looks gorgeous. Yeah. And if if you make it look good and make it because you can even perform really hard music. Yeah. Easily. Mm -hmm. If the score is readable, depending on how you notate. Definitely. Because there's no confusion that you can eliminate confusion from the start. Then there's going to be more access to what you really want as a composer right even if that is chaos right you can find there's some way to organize chaos right you know yeah yeah i've always found uh notation and engraving interesting because it's like this weird uh overlap between like artisticness and pragmatism Mm -hmm. because like i guess the artic artisticness is like the actual piece you're composing yeah but then like you have to notate it in a way that's pragmatic yeah, definitely. And that that's readable. Yeah, and you could go you could go too much either way. Right. And there's a lot of composers who are in a quick circuit. I know I'm from Texas. We did a lot of band 
I did a lot of band growing up, and we always had a sight reading piece in our band competitions every year. And they were different in every region. So somebody wrote that. Right. And here's the thing about that is they were written quickly. They were written with the idea of sight reading in mind. Mm -hmm. So, of course, there's a time signature and key signatures and there's changes, but they're not too hard, but they're there so that you have... There's a list of things you have to do in your sight reading piece. But I remember looking at the pieces and just being like, there is just bare bones information on here. Yeah. There's not a lot of times that they write information like... um, emotional cues or anything like that there's no nothing nothing that inspires you to actually play the music any any other form than just reading something correctly right and the score looks like that Mm -hmm. you know the parts look like that they just look like notes on a page and of course you're going to get good bands that are going to infuse it with a little bit of magic right to make it sound good but that's not what judges are looking for and that's not why the pieces are written. Right. So on what you were talking about in the beginning, you have this, it's all pragmatic. It right. is just, that's all that exists in the music. And then the other side of that is the, just too much information on a page. Um, <clears throat> we worked with a composer who came here last year and I remember her piece was being performed at the Eugene uh, Symphony. Mm-hmm. And I remember speaking to a couple of the musicians and asking about the parts and stuff. And they just, too much information on a page. And it's not notes. It's like paragraphs of descriptions across the bar lines about what's happening in the piece. And it's it wasn't an opera. It wasn't a ballet. There was no real story. Right. But there was way too much information for an orchestra member to, in a quick circuit, right. look at and just do quick circuit you mean by like a short turnaround yeah yeah like they only had three rehearsals on this piece before it was performed which is the reality of music right now Uh um so yeah there so there's there's these fine lines and there's also very big lines but there there is a nice little target right in the center where you can have beautiful notation that has artistry in it Mm -hmm. that is also easy to read and fundamentally just correct right (laughs) you know yeah like the it's yeah, the, the standard way yeah. of doing it. So you said <coughs> you said that um, it needed the notation itself needed to be artistic. What do you find then artistic about notation? So whenever I'm writing a piano part or a piece with that involves piano, one of my favorite notational thingies, which is, this is probably not exactly what you're asking me, but I think it's a good time to bring it up, where you tie um, a slur across the bass part to the treble part. Between the staves, yeah. And it kind of, it start, it looks like a little squiggly line. Mm-hmm. I love like doing that. S Yes, yeah, and it's my, it's it's a fa- one of my favorite notations to yeah. do, and I love doing it because it looks so pretty on a page, and it yeah. looks polished. Because in young piano works, you don't see that. Yeah. Um, and it shows because it, what that indicates is that you have some sort of gesture that's moving between the yes, two hands. Exactly. Right. And I think there's something special and artistic about that. And there, it, it shows a sort of knowledge, both notationally and musically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm like, I'm working on, uh, my ballet right now and it's for forehand pianos and it's, maybe this is not a good thing, but I'm always looking for a chance to, to ha- 
to do that. So right. I, where can I spread this melody up from the bottom into the next hand or from one pianist to the other? Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm working with a four hand piano thing. So it's like, how can I pass this off in these different ways? So I think there's some, there's kind of like artistic magic in the visual appeal um, of things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, if you think of like Ravel's music, Ravel has a lot of those kind of contour slurs um, in his music. And then you hear his music and you're like, I can see that in there almost yeah. without even seeing the the score. I know that there's this connection between the bottom to the top. And so there's a there's a really interesting play there. But it's like, I mean, there's also like a lot of, um, not to get like too deep into terminology here, mm-hmm. but like an artisanship that happens with notation. True. Yeah. Like there's a lot of time and it... it, it um, Notation and engraving is a craft within itself. Very true. As, as is demonstrated by this giant uh, Elaine Gould behind bars book oh, that I have. I don't believe in orchestration books. Oh, no, no, no. Like, <laughs> not an orchestration book, oh, but like... A notation book? A notation book. Oh, I don't believe in notation books. <laughs> I think... I, no, I just don't. They... I think that you can learn everything you need to learn about notation from scores. Well, that's, that's true too. And, um, sure. Notation books can be a point at which you can access a lot of scores, but I think that as composers, as any kind of musician, you should be looking at as many scores as you can. Right. Um, and I always, I always look at my scores and, or at new scores as much as I can and pick up notation. And I, I, I say to myself, like, wow, like why does, and I, I, okay. I usually know the piece better than looking at the score and then looking at the score is an afterthought. Right. And I go to the score and what that does for me is taking in the music and transferring it to the page and taking in the music from my memory and my hearing. Mm -hmm. So you audiate it. Exactly. And, and when you look down at it, you begin to notice different things Mm -hmm. in the notation and how it shows up on the page. Mm -hmm. And that's good for conductors and that's good for composers because if you, I don't know. It's kind of like, you know, we talk about music being in its own language, but there is almost another language in music, which is just, if you look at just a page of a score, Mm -hmm. some people can audiate and hear what it looks like. Um, Other people can't. I think that you should be able to, and you should be able to say like, I see this like vertical or big orchestral hit, but it's very short. Mm -hmm. Like it's just an eighth note. Right. That tells you something. Right. You know, and there's going to be, you know, if you see a lot of whole notes and like different kind of uh, uh, crescendi and uh, diminuendi and all these things, like that's going to tell you a different kind of atmosphere. Right. And so there, it begins, it begins to almost look like familiar paintings in different ways. Like, right. I see a lot of white notes, so I can... I imagine what this is going to sound like already before I even know what each pitch is. Right. Or I'm seeing a lot of black notes, so I'm imagining what this is. I'm seeing a lot of scales. I'm seeing a lot of skips. Right. These all tell you things before you're even reading them. So it's not that people who can audiate scores just look at a score and say, like, oh, it, this goes do, fa, and, and like can go through it. It's that they're just seeing something before it happens and knowing that is what's going to how familiarizing it with something that they already know. Right. And um, for a composer, when you're composing and you look back, you pull back and you pull down your finale or Sibelius file and you can look at your score as it's coming out, you could do that too Mm -hmm. and see if it's matching what you want to match. Right. Because you can write 
the same thing in different ways. Yeah. And it might not necessarily True. match your intention. Because mm-hmm. you could write like da 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 mm-hmm. in like 30 second notes. Yeah. But that wouldn't really, like what I sang mm-hmm. doesn't really sound indicative of 30 second yeah. notes. It sounds like more like eighth notes Definitely. or something. Yeah. And, and even when you're looking at like an orchestral score, just the, where those 30 second notes are happening on the on the actual page itself. Mm-hmm. So without even looking at the instruments on the side, just knowing here, this is the area of the strings. Like the bottom um, half of the page is where the strings play. Right. So you see a bunch of black notes there. You can imagine the sound that's probably going to happen, even if you don't know the harmonies or anything like that. Right. So when you have strings playing fast notes, that sounds different than winds playing fast notes. Right. And they're in different places on the page. Right. So that's what I mean by like looking at it, at something and being able to read it before you even... Like find really all the nitpicky things, yeah, yeah, and the nuances and stuff. So, in this next bit, we're gonna talk about Joey's experience in transcribing old notations into modern day notation. So, <clears throat> but notation hasn't always been as it is. There's historical types of notation yes. too, be it like uh, neumes and Gregorian chant. Mm-hmm. Um, Lute tablature, which mm-hmm. is a pain to read. Oh yeah, in my opinion, an <laughs> unexperienced opinion in that area. Um, but you have some experience um, taking older notations and mm-hmm. transcribing them into new ones, right? Yes, I did a project where I took a um, manuscript from a old Scottish church mm-hmm. that had its own composer. Um, choir leader person there Mm -hmm. and he had a collection of works that they had not been transcribed into modern notation so they hadn't really ever been performed so i had to do a lot of research into what clef this was three equals two two equals three this is weird weird stuff Um, instead of adding beats up to make a measure they take a beat and divide it yes by three or by two depending on what color it was like um instead of adding four quarter notes to be a whole note Mm -hmm. you're taking a whole note and dividing it four ways yes or three ways or three ways or three ways and maybe if you do divide it in four ways every once in a while you'll mark one and say this is perfect so you divide it into three right because there's the perfection which is everything is divided by three because these are coming out of religious um work yeah so the trinity is perfect uh and then there were imperfect which was divided by two and if the entire piece is divided by three, mm-hmm. then the um, colored notes will be divided by two. I think that's right. And if if it's the opposite, if the entire piece is imperfect and everything's divided by two, then the colored notes are divided by three mm-hmm. in that instance. Right. But the hardest part about all of this is that the there's no score. They're all parts. Oh, that's annoying. So I had to... And there's no bar lines or anything like that. Oh man! So you have to um, okay. you have to go through and make sure you're adding things up, and you have to kind of use your brain a little bit, and you have probably. to have a, a basic knowledge of theory to understand where the cadence points probably are. Uh-huh. So you can use those as moments to line up right. the voices onto a modern score that has all four parts on one. I can't imagine performing that from like the original notation. Well, and that's just, that just shows you how good they were at math. (laughs) You know, we think of like all these 
you know, ancient people as like being not having common knowledge. But I mean, these people were that were singing in these churches, these pieces specifically knew this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like this was their job to know how to just read this stuff. And um, yeah, it was very hard to do, but I managed to get it all together. And I think it's mostly right. Um, It's interesting because you could have everybody line up on cadences and then there's like one voice that's just like, it seems like a beat off. Yeah. And it's, you can't, you just can't do anything to that voice to figure out why it's like that. But you have to remember that these people made mistakes back then too. Yeah. yeah. So there's that correcting. Well, thing. and also like alighting the cadence like that is a thing, right? It could be, and it could also not be. Right. And you have to know more of the other person's work. And I didn't know anything about this. And like one beat composer. is like sort of a margin of error. Territory. Yeah, exactly. Or a half a beat. Sometimes they were like really odd things. And oh yeah. Every I did I did two. I did one um, that was a little bit later, and it was a French one, and it was all homophonic. So they were all singing completely together, mm-hmm. and that was that got me started. I was like, yeah. now I know how to read this. They still had separate parts. Right. But I could easily go through, and if there was a mistake, I knew how to resolve that mistake quickly because I could just compare it to the other parts. Right. And say, oh, no, this is where they messed up or where I messed up in transcribing it. Um, But the other one was just, oh, my God, it was impossible. (laughs) (laughs) I think I got it. And, um, in fact, fun fact, I uh, transcribed it for a lute and I made, like, a little... um, sound recording and my uh dm for my dungeons and dragons game uses it for our um town meeting stuff <laughs> so he's got like a little loot music playing in the background that i transcribed from authentic some, yes authentic, authentic renaissance music for dungeons and for dungeons and dragons, and dragons yes. um how do you feel about graphic notation so is like any any notation that's not traditional lines and staves and things I think it's really interesting. As a player, it scares me. Because you're also a pretty good trumpet player. Yeah. In I, contrast to being a pretty good conductor and pretty good composer. Thanks. I use pretty good <laughs> sarcastically. Yeah, I'm just pretty good. <laughs> just pretty good? <laughs> just pretty good. <laughs> He's actually really good. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, no, as a player, it kind of scares me a little bit because... Um, there's so much interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's usually yeah. completely interpretive. There, there are some good scores out there that will say like, "This is what this means," and well, so let's divide this. So there, there, well, and most yeah. like classical musicians are kind of like, for classical musicians, interpretation is a little murky. Yeah, it's like it's hard because on one hand, like, are you interpreting like the composer wrote something and you have to interpret it. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if it swings too far towards the interpretation thing, it's kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah that's true. And sometimes you go through several steps of interpretation right. before you it even gets to you as a player. Right. Because you have the composer, and then you have the conductor. Right. And then you have you. And possibly the engraver. Yes. So. And depending on what part of the instrument, uh, what part of the instrument family you're in, you could be subservient to even someone else. Right. Like uh, if you're playing second trumpet in an orchestra, you have to play like the first trumpet. Right. So you have four or five different people interpreting for you. Mm. So interpretation is kind of this thing that it's like, uh, how yeah. much freedom do I actually have right. without, in you know, what makes me a bad interpreter and what makes me a good one. But in regards to graphic notation, you do have that these a kind of diverse set of graphic notators 
you have people who are really, really all interpretation. And it's like, you just have a picture. Yeah. They don't even tell you anything. Yeah. Just a freaking picture. And they're like, play this. <laughs> and then you have the people who are like, here's this image, but also here are some guidelines. Right. And for me, I fall more towards that camp. Um, I wanted, I have been working on a, a string quartet that is all graphic notation mm-hmm. that I'm using a five, a uh, four line staff actually. And each of the lines represents one of the lines on the string. So, oh, okay. um, and everyone has a score and this is the problem with this, this way is that it's too big, yeah. <laughs> but everyone has their own score, um, with four lines and each of the lines represents this line of the string that they're playing. And from there, you have kind of like black lines that kind of move up and in between each of the lines. Mm-hmm. And that's your pitch placement. And so um, if like starting on the bottom line, so let's say you're looking at a violin part, the bottom line is the G string. So I start like a note head-ish thing, just like an image, like, mm-hmm. a, like a paintbrush, almost like a paintbrush starting on the string. Mm-hmm. And then I move it forward. Mm-hmm. And that means that uh, along the line. So that means you're playing a G. Right. And as you go up, you move your finger up the string. So the pitch goes up. Mm-hmm. And if I keep going, then I pass the next string, which is D. You don't, since it's still connected to the G string, you're not, you're not changing strings. You're just going past a D right. on G and stuff like that. And um, then if I stop and then start on a different note, then you start on that string. Mm-hmm. And I have different, like, little flags and information on, like, start on this string, but in this relatively higher above it. Mm-hmm. Um, or hollow brush marks, which means uh, harmonic mm-hmm. or something. All these, like, so it's basically my way of in reinterpreting notation mm-hmm. and combining both graphic notation and regular notation. But... There are some people who don't even, who are like, no, F notation. <laughs> I just want a picture. And yeah. th- those are the ones that kind of make me nervous as a player. And I don't really, I understand how they work in a way, but I think it's a little too metaphorical for me. Yeah. <laughs> as a player. Yeah, because I guess that's the, uh, well, I guess it's a philosophical mm-hmm. argument really is because if you provide this score, yeah. that's just a picture that the performer has to interpret Mm -hmm. is the art that's created the score or the music resulting from it. Yeah. Could someone go to the uh, Chicago museum and look at pictures of Van Gogh's hay wheels and start playing something and saying, this is what the score is telling me. Could you, could you make art a score then? Right. If, if you can make scores art, right. Can you do the other way? And I would say yes, Mm -hmm. but you know, I'm not an expert on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, not an expert. I'm not an expert either, but I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a little bit, there's like the big kind of like cross denominational objectivity about that, that it, yeah. it's like, it's a little too much for me, Yeah. but, um, I see how it works. Yeah. However, I think the, the craft of music is being lost by doing that. Yeah. Because, because it's what, inter-artistic interdisciplinary yeah exactly and for me what makes music so great and what makes music so lasting is the artistry like you were saying of the score Mm -hmm. of the uh, just the sheer organization of it is just 
amazing mm -hmm. to get a group of 55 musicians to play together and <laughs> yeah, to yeah. show to show them like look at how how well we can do this you're well, you're shining into the art of the and the skill of the performers of the conductor of the composer by show like you're showing them like look how organized we can be <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so well you got to get them in the same place yes and then get them to play together. yes of course yeah if you can get them in the same place I mean, if you can offer them enough money. <laughs> How many emails can How you many send? How many emails can you send? No, that's exactly right. But yeah, so I, I think that's, that is lost with graphic notation. Yeah. And it's... And it kind of tips the... I guess, like... I I, I don't want to say it's not music, because that's not an argument I really want to mm -hmm. have with anybody. Because yeah. it's kind of... But it kind of, it's a different kind of art. Yeah. You know, it's because it's not... Exactly. ...sounds mm -hmm. represented on a page. Yeah. Well, but I guess But that's it what is. music is. <laughs> yeah, like... Music is sound... So, I, I, I've said this before, and it's a little bit controversial in this idea that I have, but it helps me clarify what I'm in it for as a musician, and I think there are pieces that would be more appreciated in an art museum, and there are pieces that are more appreciated in a concert hall. Mm -hmm. And I think the flat graphic notation is its own thing that would be more successful in an art museum. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to say, like, we should close the doors to things like that. Like, right. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's it's not... I don't think it's the same genre. Yeah. I think it's closer to being physical art than it is right. to being oral art right and um because like even to take it out of that sort of avant-garde space mm -hmm. for a second we have different performance venues for the orchestra and for like yeah uh, club music mm -hmm. or a rock concert yeah exactly so yeah so it's like if if i don't know who's a good rock musician right now <laughs> right now if, yeah. i couldn't name led zeppelin not that's not right well now, okay if Nicki minaj wanted to appear in bell hall at university of oregon that would be considered odd yeah that's not the right venue for like pop music right so i think it's safe to say that there's better venues for music like that involve severe graph severe is not a good word <laughs> but severe graphic notation in the sense that it is just a, an image mm -hmm. that musicians are interpreting right i think that a bigger crowd would be drawn than sitting in a concert hall mm -hmm. because also if you if you think about sitting in a concert hall sitting in a concert hall has a different energy to it mm -hmm. you're not necessarily looking when you're listening right when you go to an art museum you're not necessarily listening you're looking, you're looking. But there have been installations in art museums where it opens your ears. And those are a little, I love those, those are more invigorating for me because it's like you walk into a room and you're hearing things. Yeah. And um, I think that we could do more of that. And, you know, what's hard about it is it's perform it becomes a performance art. Right. Now, I don't think every performance art belongs in a concert hall. Right. That, I mean, it, yeah, <laughs> I think that I made my point, but it's just like, I think that well, it's about yeah. the, um, sort of the intersection of visual art and music at that point. Yeah. Because, um, which, and I guess that's why it's hard to say where it should be done because mm -hmm. on one hand it's music. So maybe it should be in the concert hall. Yeah. But on the other hand, like the composer provided this mm -hmm. visual thing. Yeah. So maybe it should be in an art museum. 
And I guess it depends somewhat on like what the instruments involved are supposed yeah. to be. And isn't John Adams' pieces, aren't they in art museums, his scores? I don't know. I think I remember reading that or even seeing them that he, because I'm not sure if it was graphic notation specifically, but I know that his scores were considered so beautiful that they were put into a museum. Huh. You can go see them and they're original because they're all hand done. Right, right. I think that's John Adams. I might be completely wrong. But so there is that. That's that's a cross thing. I mean, right. like, no, it's like it's like going to an art museum and seeing blueprints for a building. Yeah. You know what I mean? There it's that's. It's connecting the art world um, in different aspects, but you know, I just I think that the pieces themselves would be more appreciated by visual artists and visual art goers than to aural artists, right? Because that's not why you go to a concert to look at something necessarily. Yeah, necessarily. Now you could say like, oh, opera and ballet, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing, but it, it, it's a different frame of mind. The still art. Right. You know what I mean? And the interpretation stuff and stuff like that. Um, okay. So this last thing is what is a piece of music that you love? Our, you know, Stravinsky file. <laughs> I love Stravinsky. So... Right now, I've been listening a lot to Renard because I'm working with an ensemble, the Pacific Artist Collective, that we are performing that piece in a couple months. So I've been really into the score, and it's always just been a favorite piece of mine because it's it's so interesting, and it sounds so big, but the score is rather small, mm-hmm. and um, it, it involves singers and woodwinds and brass and string players and... It's a ballet and also sort of an opera. It's like kind of everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's so versatile and stuff. And Talk I, about crossing genre. Yeah, crossing genres, right? It, it, yeah, it involves everything. Um, and it subtitled burlesque, which is very interesting because it's nowhere near what we would consider burlesque. But um, yeah, no, it's a beautiful piece. It's very folksy mm-hmm. and very Russian. <laughs> and it's just, it's great. It's like compressed... Stravinsky. <laughs> is there a particular moment in it that you like, or is just the whole thing? There's so many. Every time I listen to it, there's something else that I really like. And now that I'm really digging into the score, you know, you don't always hear everything that Stravinsky writes, especially right. in his er- like earlier works and his later works. He hides a lot of things in there, and he was very good at saying, "At like, let's make the bassoon pianissimo," and you don't even hear what he's doing in the background. But it adds to the colors and the textures that actually do hit your ear. Mm-hmm. So there's like a really interesting thing about that. And then when you start looking at the scores, you start hearing them more. And what's fun about it, if it's not specifically notated to stay quiet or softer, is you can play with it. You can say, actually, I'm conducting this. This is my interpretation. Bassoon, play that out. Or clarinet, play that less. Or strings, really hammer into that accent in a different way to bring it out. And you can, it's like... Stravinsky's music is always ever-changing, even, you know, 100 years later. Um, so I really love Renard because now I'm, I'm getting into it. I'm seeing all these little things, and I'm hearing them deeper and appreciating them more. But there's a really cool part. Well, we're going to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
If you like what you heard, please visit me on the web at patreon.com slash musicintheory, or you can go to one of the social media profiles listed in the show notes. This podcast is written, recorded, and produced by me, Brent Lawrence, in my apartment's spare bedroom, which is currently located in Eugene, Oregon. Thanks so much to Joey for being on. It was a blast. I hope you'll tune in next time. But until then, keep listening. This has been Music in Theory. Wow.